Okay, well today you can turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Before our communion time, we're going to be having a little bit of uh, time in the book of Matthew once again, and uh, picking up from our message last week. And we'll conclude the chapter uh, 24 today. I remind you, this coming week is uh, the Passion Week, and so on Friday we will be having our Good Friday service at 6 o'clock, 6 to 7, and it's a communion service. It's a good opportunity to, to invite uh, friends, neighbors, family, whatever, and uh, bring them out and celebrate the death of our Lord. And then also next uh, Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, we'll be meeting here at 10 o'clock, so be aware of that. As you turn your hearts to God's Word this morning, we're looking at the coming of the sun. No man knows the hour. And uh, one theologian in a book, Oscar Coleman, wrote this, The Christian exists in a tension between what is already and what is not yet. Every believer is in that, that middle point. We've already experienced salvation, if we've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and yet we haven't fully experienced that salvation in the sense of the redemption of our own bodies. We don't have glorified bodies yet. Um, We've received the Holy Spirit. We received the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet we don't see the fullness of that power until we'll be in full glory with our Lord and Savior. Um, We've received the eternal life that's promised, but we haven't yet participated, you might say, in the resurrection. And so we're, in a sense, caught in this in-between time. What is already true in our hearts and what we know to be true and what is the not yet. And so when you look back at the cross of Christ and you look forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in those days in between, the church age. We live with that, I pray that that excitement is in your heart. Over in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time, without sin unto salvation. See, He has already borne our sins, but we look forward to Him because His second coming hasn't happened yet. And the glory of our salvation isn't really realized yet. Peter put it this way in his epistle, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to the abundant mercy which has already begotten us, again, unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. And then it says this, incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away. It's reserved in heaven for us. See, we've already been begotten by the Lord, but we haven't necessarily totally inherited the full inheritance because it says that that inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. 1 John 3 says... Beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that he, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. I mean, I don't know about you, but that gets me a little bit excited. 
See, we've received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and yet there's still a time that, in a lot of ways, we're not like Christ because we're in this sinful body. We live between the already and the not yet. And so we should anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the church, we anticipate the rapture, the the, the Lord Jesus Christ coming down into the clouds and taking us up to be in heaven with him. And that time begins the time that we've been studying here in Matthew, known as the tribulation period. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have yet to put your faith and trust in him, if you have yet to been born again, if you have yet to been transformed by his power, if you've been taken from the darkness into the light, if that's not happened to you yet, I pray that your heart would be open to his message of hope, of love, of forgiveness. Because, in all honesty, for those of you who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ and haven't experienced the forgiveness of your sins and don't have that relationship with him, you may not, frankly, be looking forward to his coming. Those who would look and hear the message of the second coming of Jesus Christ and who are not ready for that event, let me just say it, you should live in fear. Paul says this, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men to believe the gospel. The writer of Hebrews says this, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. You say, well, I thought God was love. I thought God was all about love. Wait a minute, what are you telling me? It goes on and it says that our God is a consuming fire. See, the problem with our churches today and society today is there's so much emphasis on that four-letter word, love. We forget the other four-letter word that describes God, holy. We forget the other four-letter word that describes God, just. You know, we want to emphasize the attributes of God that make us feel good. You know, His love and God's fair, and I'm sure one day I'll stand before him and he'll see the the good things that I've done and he'll let me come in to heaven. No, he will not. He can't. Because it's not based on your good things that you enter heaven. And if you don't understand that, I pray that you would come to an understanding of that. When you stop and think about it, that's like arguing, you know what, I committed a crime... I murdered somebody, and I go before the judge, and I say, hey, you know, judge, I've done a lot of good things in my life, too. Helped a lot of people. Tried to be a good husband. Yeah, you know, I lost it one day and killed somebody, but, you know, I'm sorry for that. What would you think of that judge if he looked at me and said, you know what, I hear you. Yeah, you're free to go. Go ahead. I know you murdered somebody, and I know that, that, that the law says that I have to do certain things, but, you know, as a judge, I feel sorry for you, so I'm just going to let you go. You wouldn't think that would be a very just judge. You'd probably call for his resignation. You'd want him impeached. To let a criminal go, someone who's admitted to murdering somebody, just let him walk free, based on what they've done good in their life? 
That wouldn't make any sense. And yet we bring that same reasoning into our relationship with God. We think somehow that one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to show him all the good things we do and the churches that we've been to and the prayers that we've prayed and maybe even the verses that we've read and said, boy, I've tried to help homeless people and tried to live my life in a, in a good way. And somehow God's going to look at us and go, oh, okay. Come on in. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to ask you one question. What did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? And so the Bible very clearly says, if you're not prepared to meet God, then your heart should be filled with fear. To think of the coming of Jesus Christ, you can think of two things. If you know him, then you think of hope. You think of anticipation of glory. You think of being with him forever. If you don't know him in a personal way, if you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, then you might think of it as fear or even dread of eternal doom. And so when we come to the subject of the coming of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, back to earth, those who know him and love him will love his appearing. And those who do not will fear it. Well, you might be sitting here and saying, well, when's this going to happen? When's Jesus going to come back? And that's not a new question because the disciples asked that same question. Remember, in our, our gospel, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, they said the, it says the disciples gathered together around Jesus and they asked him, when shall these things be? And what are the signs of your coming? So they wanted to know two things, when and what. How are we going to know it's going to happen and when is it going to happen? And we've looked at verses 4 through 35, and he gave, gave them the what answer. He said, you want to know what's going to happen? I'll tell you. And he gave them a bunch of signs, and you can get the, the CDs on that or go online and, and, and hear the message on the website. But we've been through all that. And he said, there are certain distinct things that are going to happen before I return. And then he turns last week... Verse 36 to the when question. He says, you want to know when? I'll tell you when. And he look at verse 36. He answers this question for them. He says, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Period. No one knows. And so the disciples are saying, well, wait, wait a minute. You know, uh, you mean nobody knows? No, no humans know, and we've gone over this. No angels, he says, it says, neither does the Son know. Jesus says, I don't even know. In my humanness, as I stand here before you, I don't even know when I'm going to return. God has not revealed that to me. And we talked all about that last week. And he said it again in verse 42. You know not what hour. Verse 44 says, for in such an hour as you think not, the Lord will come. And then in verse 50, at the end of our text, he says, in an hour that he is not aware of. So the hour of the Lord's return is yet to be disclosed. We don't know when. Now, we know the general time period because Jesus gave us the general time period. He said when certain things start to fall into place, when the church is taken out of here, there begins a seven-year period on earth known as the rapture, which, or known as the tribulation, which starts at, with the signing of a peace treaty with Israel and the Antichrist, who they don't know is the Antichrist. They think he's their savior. So they sign a peace treaty with him for seven years. And we've gone through this in the middle of the seven years, three and a half years in, 
the Antichrist bursts into the temple and he declares himself to be God. He desecrates it and he demands worship of himself. And the way he's got to that power is not through, through military means necessarily, but through peaceful means, promising peace, promising peace. And he does protect Israel when all the nations turn their their armies against Israel, and he delivers Israel, and he says, yeah, you can go ahead and worship. Go ahead and do your temple thing. And so they think, hey, this is great. We've got peace on the earth. We've got everything going on. We can do our worship. And then the Antichrist turns his back on them and literally the whole world and declares himself to be God and demands worship. And everyone who doesn't worship him is slaughtered. The Bible says that a third, two-thirds of Israel will be slaughtered. A quarter of the world's population will die in a period of time. And all these terrorizing events take place here on earth. Remember, we're not here as the church. We've been taken back to heaven. That's the rapture of the church. And so he wants us to know that, you know what? This time is unknown. The exact day, the exact hour, no one knows it. So when somebody tells you they know when the Lord is returning... You can just literally laugh at him and say, show me in the Bible, chapter, verse. Where does it say that? Now, we can know the general time. If you show up here some Sunday and nobody's here, and there's just a bunch of clothes sitting in the pew and shoes, then you might want to say, hmm, the rapture may have taken place. So you kind of know, in general, from a period of time from the rapture of the church Somewhere along the line, there's going to be a signing of a peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. And then the seven-year period begins of tribulation. And then you're going to notice, wow, there's going to be somebody who actually declares himself to be God. Three and a half years in, that starts the great tribulation. And then the wheels are going to fall off the cart down here on earth. And everything's going to be turned upside down, basically, literally. And it's going to be a mess. And you can kind of say, wow. I kind of know the general period when Jesus is returning because he said all these things are going to come before that. But you still don't know the day nor the hour. And the Bible doesn't tell us that. And so we asked ourselves last week, what should be our attitude toward these truths that we've heard? I mean, if, if Jesus is coming back and we've, we, we said here that we don't know when he's returning... And some people say, well, why is he waiting? And we answer that question. Sin has to run its course. That's what the Bible says, Revelation 14, 15. And also, salvation has to be completed. Jesus Christ will not return until every soul that is chosen by God to be saved will be saved. And so the first attitude that we should have concerning his return, it says in verse 37... He says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And when they were unaware until the flood, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the the coming of the Son of Man. So the first thing that we looked at was we need to be alert. We need to be aware of what's happening. And the one thing that 
we see from the days of Noah is they just carried on their everyday activity like it was nothing. They drank, they ate, not, nothing wrong with those things. They married, they gave in marriage. In other words, they just continued to live their life even though this preacher of righteousness was out in the desert building this giant box he called an ark that God had directed and built. And when people say, what are you doing, Noah? He would say, well, I'm building the ark because God's going to cause a flood. How's he going to do that? Well, it's going to rain. What's rain? I don't know. They never knew rain up to this point. It never rained before this period. So I can imagine the people kind of looking at Noah and saying, man, this, this guy's nuts. This guy's lost his marbles. A flood? And it's going to wipe out the whole earth? Come on, you've got to be kidding me. Let's just go about our, our daily life. This is ridiculous. He did this for 120 years. That's how long it took him. Talk about a patient man. Remember, they didn't have power saws and all that stuff back then. I mean, just the idea that he had built something like that that's even bigger than the Queen Mary out of wood. I mean, it's amazing. You say, well, you actually believe that? Yeah, I actually do. I don't think it's a story. I think it, the ark really existed. I think Noah really built it, and I think he really saved the people that were left, him and his family, and two of every animal, just like the Bible says. You say, well, why do you believe that? Well, if you go into secular science and you begin to ask them, is there any reason to believe that there was a worldwide deluge, a flood that covered everything in the earth? Does geology show us that at all? Most honest scientists would say, yeah. There's a lot of evidence that points to something like that happening. Not only that, but there's a lot of different cultures that speak of a worldwide flood. Not only that, but there's even been evidence uncovered that such an ark actually exists. Because it said it came and it rested in the mountains of Ararat. Now, they haven't uncovered it. They haven't found it yet, literally. But there's been so-called reportings of this giant boxed wooden thing up in the mountains when the certain times of the season and the snowpack melts to expose it. And you say, well, why wouldn't God just expose it? And boy, that would prove a lot, wouldn't it? I, I think the reason God is not exposing the Noah's Ark is simply because I think people would turn it into a shrine. <laughs> I think they'd worship it. So is there evidence of this? Yes, there is. But you know what? The people back then just turned a blind eye to it. And what he's saying is in the end times, when, when Jesus is getting ready to come back and all these things start to happen, all these things, the wheels start to fall off the, the, the cart and there's hurricanes and, and, and earthquakes and fires and stars falling out of heaven and the church is gone. You say, well, you think people would look at that and go, wow, maybe we should pay attention to what's happening. No, they're not going to. As a matter of fact, I think even when the rapture of the church happens, stop and think about it. What would be a likely scenario? What would you hear on ABC Channel 7 News? Millions of people disappear. They're gone. What happened? Do you think they're going to actually say, well, the Bible must be true. Jesus came back and took him away. I don't think they're going to say that. You know what I think they're going to say? I think they're going to say, you know what? We've been looking for evidence of aliens for years and years and years. And you know what? These good aliens who are far superior to us came back and took these crazy Christians off our hands. 
I think that's what they're going to buy. I think they're going to buy that lie. You say, you don't don't believe aliens exist? No, I don't. Why? Because the Bible doesn't speak anything about aliens. As a matter of fact, when you think about it logically, when God created the earth, he created animals. What was the, 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 the highest kind of point of his creation? You and I, right? Humans. When he finished creating humans, he said, you know what, man and woman, that's it. Everything's good. We're good to go. Not only that, but he created man and woman in his image, right? So if you were the enemy, if you were Satan, and you wanted to rob God of his glory, of his divine creation power, what kind of scheme could you come up with? Well, you know what? We're not the only created beings. There's an alien planet somewhere with, with, with beings on it that are far superior to humans. They make us look like, you know, dummies. They're just so far superior. And what does that do? That steals from God's creation. That steals glory from God. And I think that's exactly where all that stuff comes from. But with that being said, these people were not ready when Noah closed the ark and the rain came. And they were left pounding on the door. They were not alert. Well, then he says in verse 40, he brings up basically the second attitude. 43 there, the second attitude. He says in verse 40, the one will be left, man will be left, one will be taken. What's that mean? We went over that last week. One will be, be, be taken to judgment. The other one will be left to live on in the millennial kingdom. Verse 42, therefore stay awake. In other words, be alert because you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Verse 43 brings us up to where we're at today. Be ready. He says this, but know this, that if the master of the house, he gives them a parable, kind of an illustration. He says, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Now, if you stop and you think about the Jewish day, the Jewish day is basically broken up into four periods. They look at the day from 6 to 6, 24-hour period. They break up their days from 6 to 9, from 9 to 12, from 12 to 3, and from 3 to 6. And so what he's saying here in verse... 43, that if the master of the house, the person who owns the house, okay, knows what part of the night, in other words, what watch of the night, the thief is going to come, he would have stayed awake. And he would not let his house be broken into. That word broken into literally means be dug into because they had soil walls back then, and you could actually dig into a house if you had enough time to do it. That's how they would rob them. Didn't have to go through the door. You could just dig through the the side of the house. Now, what's interesting to me here is that what person here this morning, if I told you, you know what, tonight at 1.30, somebody's going to come by, and they're going to break into your house, and they're going to steal 
your flat panel TV, and your computer. If you were a wise person, what would you do? You would probably want to know, first of all, how I know this, and I just know it. (laughs) It's going to happen, I guarantee you that. After you kind of believe me, wouldn't you be a fool if you just went home and said, whatever. If you knew at 1.30 in the morning somebody was going to break into your house, I don't know about you, but I'd be ready. I'd get ready. I'd have my whatever weapon I want (laughs) available to me at that time. (laughs) And I'd have my cell phone ready or my home phone ready to call 911 to get the police there as soon as I heard somebody rattling that door or trying to break in a window. Boy, this is is the time. That would be the wise thing to do. Wouldn't you be foolish if, well, yeah, I hear him breaking in. I'm just going to go back to sleep. That would would be ridiculous. I don't think any of us would do that. Well, what's the point? He's referring here to the coming of the Lord. And he says, if you know what part, what time in general, that the Lord is coming back, wouldn't you be ready? You'd stay awake. You wouldn't let your house be broken into. And then he says in verse 44, Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How do you compare the coming of the Son of Man to a thief in the night. Does that mean Jesus is a thief? Is that what he's saying? No. He's he's basically using the illustration just for time purposes. doesn't mean that Jesus is a criminal. But he is likened, his coming is likened to a thief. It's likened to that in 2 Peter 3.10, Revelation 3.3, Revelation 16.5, Luke 12, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And the the coming of the Lord is likened as that of a coming of a thief. He will come, what it means, suddenly. He will come unexpectedly. I've never known a thief to come and knock on your door at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and say, Hey, just let you know, I'm the local thief in the neighborhood, burglar. Tonight, I'm coming to your house. I'll be there at 1.30. Just let you know. Thieves don't do that, do they? No, they they operate at night. They operate in the stealth. They don't want people to see them. When a thief comes, he takes basically everything you have. Well, here's another corollary between Christ and the thief. When Christ comes, he, he comes and he finds a man who's not ready for his coming. Everything that that man has, he'll take. The Bible says it'll be burned up. So in that sense, you might say, well, Jesus is kind of a thief in the night. He's coming unexpectedly, and if you're not ready for him, he will literally take all that you have. Now, he says in verse 44, be ready, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You're going to be caught off guard if you're not ready. So the question is, how do you become ready for this? 
I mean, here, here Jesus is saying over and over, and you can't imagine, think about it, this is a time period in history, they've gone through pretty much the seven years of tribulation. They've seen the Antichrist be raised up. He's slaughtering everybody on the world. I mean, this stuff's on the nightly news. And yet these people are still denying the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming is just down the road. And the Lord in in Luke chapter 12, look, look over there at Luke chapter 12 with me. Because he warns He warns them, down to verse 35. He warns them of his coming. He says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for the service, for service, and have them recline at tables, and he will come and serve them. See, if you're ready for the Lord's return, if you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior, It literally says, when the Lord comes back, if you've been alert and you're ready and you're one of his children, he'll sit you down at a table to eat and he'll serve you. That's the kingdom of God. And if he comes in the second watch or the third watch or whenever he comes, the idea is is that you need to be ready. The only way you can be ready for the Lord's coming is to deal with the issue of Jesus Christ today. Because you say, well, is this years off? Is this like a thousand years away? Or when is this? No, it could, the rapture of the church could happen at any time, beloved. Nothing has to happen before Jesus Christ comes back and ushers his church out of here. And as soon as that happens, that begins this clock ticking, seven years and, and so forth. And the idea is to be ready. Just like when you buy insurance, you don't know when you're going to get sick, you don't know when your car is going to get broken into or or your house is going to be hit by a flood or whatever. You buy insurance because you want to be ready. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is. When you come to Him and you, you admit that you're a sinner, that you need the grace of God, that you need to be saved. See, the Bible is very clear. It says all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. All. Well, what do do you think that means? It means all. There's not a person in this room today that has never sinned. Ever. We've all sinned. We've all fall short of God's glory. God's standard is up here. We're way down here. And what we try to do in our religiosity is we try to climb the ladder of good works. Well, I'll go to church, or I'll do this, or I'll do that, and we think somehow we're getting closer to heaven. When in reality, we're getting closer to hell if we're trusting in our own good works. And it's so, so clear when 
when, when, when Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew that, you know what, there's going to come a time when people will, will come before the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be standing before Jesus Christ. Everyone will stand before Jesus Christ one day. Whether you believe in him or not, you're going to stand before him. And not only that, but the Bible says that every knee will bow. It doesn't even leave that up for option. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, are you doing that for salvation? Are you doing that for damnation? Because either way, you will know one day that Jesus is Lord. In Matthew chapter 7, Verse 21, Jesus says this, and this is so important to get this this morning, because we begin to feel comfortable in our goodness, we begin to feel comfortable in our religiosity, and and we kind of feel comfortable with the God that we kind of recreated to be our God, a God of love and forgiveness, and no, you know, he's not into the hell thing and everything, and now, well, here's here's what's going to happen to some people on this certain day. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Well, I thought that was kind of a prerequisite for salvation. That you had to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of your life, and you had to come to him for forgiveness. Yeah, it is. And see, we live in the day and age right now, the church age, the period of grace, the time of grace, where you are invited to come. If you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to come. Come to the Savior. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, if you're drowning in the pool... And yet you're too filled with pride to say, oh, excuse me, help, I'm drowning. Maybe nobody will know you're drowning. <laughs> Maybe you'll just drown. That's what happens to a lot of surfers. You, ever, you understand this? They go out in the surf, and you know, these, are, these are guys that are at the peak of their, their, their athletic I mean, ability. Surfing is not an easy thing to do. And they're out there, and they're surfing away, and some of these guys, they get tired. And they, they, they get, they're so filled up with themselves and their pride sometimes, they get out there in these currents and stuff, and they think, oh, I'll just paddle ashore, I'll paddle ashore. I'm okay, I'm not going to, you know, freak out, I'll just, I'll just deal with it. And they try to deal with it, and what happens? They end up drowning because they're unwilling to say, hey, I need some help out here. See, that's the human heart. The human heart is basically filled with pride. It doesn't want to say, hey, I'm drowning. i got a problem with sin in my life. And I know there's only one person that can deal with that. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a time and age right now, beloved, where you can cry out to him. And you can ask him to save you. And you know what? He will. When you request that from a sincere heart. But there's going to come a day when people cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. And that's not going to be the ticket to heaven. Because the door of the ark is going to be closed. Time would have run out. And then he says this, But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This, this leads right into the next attitude. Not only alertness, not only readiness, but be faithful. Be faithful. He says in verse 45, Matthew 24, Who then is faithful? Who is the faithful and wise servant? Whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. The picture here is a parable of a master who basically has servants living within his household. And he says, you know what? You're the faithful one. I'm going to put you over everybody else. I'm going to be gone. I want you to feed these people. Take care of them while I'm gone. Verse 46, it says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will, will find so doing when he comes. The idea is, the master leaves the house, puts a servant in, in charge. Says, I want you to take care of everybody else. And he leaves. Doesn't say when he's coming back. Well, that, that servant is looked upon as faithful when his master comes back and finds him doing exactly what he said. I mean, this isn't hard to understand. Think of yourself at work, at your job, and your boss comes in and says, hey, you know, I'm going to be out of town for a couple of days, but I need you to kind of look over things here and, and run things for me while I'm gone. Can you handle that? Yeah, no problem. All right. When are you coming back? Well, I don't know. A couple days. Hmm. And the boss leaves. Boss is out of town, thousands of miles away. You don't know where he's at. You don't really care. You, you have a choice to make. You could be a faithful employee and do what the boss told you to do. Or you could be totally unfaithful and say, hey, guess what? The boss is gone. We're leaving at noon the next three days. You know, he said a couple days, so we're just going to have a party in here. You know, order some food. Because you want everybody to like you. You could do that. That would be unfaithful. That's what the story is here. Verse 47 says, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. When he comes back, the boss comes back and he says, Wow, you've done a really good job. Came back and you're working, you're burning the oil, you're really doing a good job. You know what? Hey, I'm going to be gone a little more. I'm going to give you a little more responsibility. That's how it would happen. Same here in the story. I'm going to put you over all the possessions. Verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself... So you, you, all of a sudden you turn from Mr. Faithful to Mr. Wicked. And you say, wow, let's see. My master's delayed. Weather problems in Seattle or Denver. He's going to be there for a couple more days. So I really don't need to do what he tells me to do. I can do whatever I want. I'm in charge. Verse 49, it says, He begins to beat his fellow servants. He eats and drinks with drunkards. What's he doing? He's being unfaithful. Verse 50, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. I mean, look at what happens to this poor guy. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. See, what's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody that says they're something, but they're not. Who wants to be in charge? Oh, me. 
All right, I'm going to be gone for a week. You're going to be faithful. Yeah, I'm going to be faithful. I'll, I'll do everything you say, boss. Go ahead and have a good time. The boss is gone. See, a wicked servant would take advantage of that. Do whatever he wants. Take advantage of other people in the office. And then the boss realizes, wow, a day into his journey, he forgot a certain piece of paperwork and he needs to come back. And he comes back and there's a party going on and you're in charge. Guess what's going to happen? Yeah, you're not going to be there very long. (laughs) You're more than likely going to get fired. Well, the thing you have to understand of this story, it ends with a firing, but not a firing from a job. Look at what it says at the end of verse 51. It says, he'll put him in that place, the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's that mean? It's talking about hell. It's talking about the reality of hell. We have a parable here, a story that relates to us that you know what? As human beings, God has entrusted certain things to us. Whether you're a Christian or not, at that point, it's, it's really irrelevant. Every single person in the world, we've been given a certain management test by God. What are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with the breath he gives us? What are we doing with the privilege that he gives us? All those things are granted to us by a God who created us. And he's going to hold us account one day of the stewardship of those, those gifts he's given to us. And hell is a place that will be populated not only by the devil and his angels, but by people who, in a way, wasted that privilege that God gave them. Who really embezzled God's substance. Remember the story in Matthew 18 that we we studied about. The one who was called to give an account how he could embezzle the king's money. See, every man, every woman in the world is given a stewardship by God. And if you embezzle God's goods and privileges and resources and opportunities, one day you will be held account for that, for those actions. Hell is going to be filled with people of such. And that's exactly what Matthew 7 says. There's going to come a day when people stand before the Lord... And they cry out to Jesus Christ and they say, Lord, Lord. Says verse 722, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not look at some of the things they did prophesy in your name? Did they not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? What are they saying? Hey, Lord, I'm doing all these things in your name. Those things aren't necessarily bad things. Casting out demons, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That would be a good thing. Especially if you were the one that was possessed by the demon, right? Prophesying in your name, that's not a bad thing. Prophesying, telling the word of God to people, that's not a bad thing. Doing mighty works in your name, that's not a bad thing. Well, then why, why is he condemning them then? Verse 23, it says, And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
If those things are good things, then why does he discount them? It's very simple. Because they were counting on those good things to get them into a place called heaven. They were counting on their behavior, on their goodness in and of themselves to save them. And that's what we do. As human beings, we do this. We, we think somehow if we can just balance out the scales, if somehow our goodness can overcome our, our badness, that God will like us more. If I just do more things, if I, if I get involved in more maybe Bible studies, or if I, if I read more scripture, or if I go to more churches, or if I serve more people, if I do all these things, somehow God will like me more. And that's not true. That is not true. In the end, God will look at you and say one thing. What did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? Did you trust him for your salvation? Did you trust him for the forgiveness of your sin? If not, you know what? I don't even know who you are. It doesn't say, oh, I knew you that one day, but you walked away, and now I don't know you anymore. No, Jesus is very clear. He says, I never, ever knew you. Which is a a, a good evidence of eternal security, of the perseverance of the saints. Once you come to Christ, once you're saved, once you declare your, your guilt before God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need a Savior. And He saves you. Nothing, the Bible says, can undo that transaction. Nothing. That's how powerful our God is. When He saves us, beloved, He saves us even from ourselves. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Think if your salvation was left up to you. Think if Jesus said, okay, you know what? I died on the cross, and I died on the cross for all of your sins up to this point. (laughs) Everything you've ever done, you can write it down and burn it because it's all forgiven. Everything. That would be a good thing. I can think of a lot of things I've done in my life that, that were dishonoring to God, that were sin in His eyes. And man, that's good to have that burden kind of free, gone. And then Jesus says, but from now on, you've got to live perfectly. From now on, all your sins are forgiven back here. Don't mess it up, because if you just sin one more time, you're going to hell, pal. I mean, think if that was the message of the gospel. Where would the hope be? Where would the joy be? There would be none. I mean, you know, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night. Even if I could make it somehow through the day without sinning, I'd think somehow I'd, I'd sin in my sleep. Had a weird dream or something. I don't know. I would just be terrified. And what he says is, no, I never, ever knew you. Once you're saved, beloved, you're saved for all eternity. That should cause your bed to hit, hit your head to hit the pillow at night and be able to sleep. That's where the joy, that's where the, 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 just the glory comes to us in our salvation. What have you done with his son? I mean, what on earth are you waiting for? 
Everything that we've studied, everything that we've looked at points that, you know what, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. A lot of the things that we've looked at are, are very real things. These, these aren't pie-in-the-sky things. These are things that you can go to secular history and even back up. What are you doing with his son? Hey, I get it. It's, sometimes it's hard to bow the knee. I, I get it. Sometimes, you know, it's hard to, to admit our sinfulness. To admit that we need to be saved. But I would pray that God would be gracious to your soul. That God would open your eyes to the truth. That somehow God would allow you to make that commitment to his son. Because outside of that commitment, beloved, outside of of your following Christ for your salvation, coming to him for your salvation, trusting in him and him alone, it's not in a church, it's not in a denomination, it's not in a prayer you prayed 20 years ago, it's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. That's That's what that means. And when you embrace the Savior, he grants his salvation, that salvation to you. He saves you. He washes your sins away, the Bible says. Verse 46, Matthew 24, says that the servant that is blessed is the one who is doing what the master asked him to do when he comes. You know what? That's, that, that, that basically tells us, you know what? If you want to know that you're saved, if you want to know, how do I know I'm saved? Are you doing what God asked you to do? It's very simple. God didn't create something here that's, that's hard to understand. It's basically saying that the redeemed are those that are obedient. Obedience is always the mark of salvation. Always. Well, I thought you just said we don't get saved by what we're doing. No, we don't. I said it's the mark of salvation. If you're doing what God wants you to do and you're one of his ch- children, that should affirm your salvation. You should say, yeah, I'm saved. Well, how do I know I'm saved? Because I trusted in Christ. But how do I know that every day? Because I'm doing what God wants me to do. I have a desire to please God. That's why Jesus said, you can't come after me unless you die to yourself. Because who's the number one person we want to please? Me, <laughs> right? That's, that's the way we all are. We're, we're concerned about who we are. And when Jesus told us the message of salvation comes by following Christ, he said, you have to follow me, but in order for you to follow me, you have to first deny yourself. You have to come to a point in time where you realize, you know what, I can't save myself. I can't save myself. I'm going to put my faith and trust in a Savior. Because I know I've done wrong things. Everybody's done wrong things. And God will save you. God will save you from your sin. He'll save you even from yourself. Don't be like the hypocrite. Don't. Try to pretend to be somebody you're not. Lay the pride aside. You know, ask for some help. I mean, I think that that's the key here. The key is humility. See, it's the prideful person that will not admit their need of a Savior. They think somehow they're going to trust in their religion or they're going to trust in their good works or they're going to trust in this or that or whatever. The Bible says, no, if you trust in that, man, you're, you're on a quick, quick road to hell. So what is your 
attitude toward Christ is coming. Are you alert? Are you ready? Are you faithful? When he returns, will you be found such? One last verse before we close and have our communion time. 1 Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 2. Talking about times and seasons and he says in verse 2 for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like what? A thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman just like Matthew 24 said and they will not escape. But then he says to the Christians there, you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And listen to this, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, listen to this, or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where your faith is. But you know what? One thing the enemy doesn't want you to do is put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. William Barclay, a commentator, tells an interesting story of three apprentice demons. And these apprentice demons came before Satan. And he sent them to earth to do their apprenticeship. And the first apprentice demon said, I'm going to tell people that there's no God. And Satan said, it won't work. They know better. The second apprentice demon said, I'm going to tell people that there's no hell. Satan said, it won't work. They know better. And the third demon said this. I will tell people there's no hurry. And with those words, Satan said, you will gain many, many souls. Paul said, knowing the time that is now, it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now, now, beloved, Is our salvation nearer than when we believed? The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of the darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 
Lord, we pray that we would not be caught not knowing you when you returned. Lord, I pray for each soul that's here in this place, seated here today. Father, that they would ponder the words that were spoken to their hearts. Lord, this isn't about emotionalism. This isn't about making people do something they don't want to do. It's about sharing the truth, the Word of God, the Gospel, with people who may not have yet trusted in You. Lord, I pray that You would quicken their hearts and their minds to understand. Father, Your Word's very clear. We're all, we're all sinners. Not one of us would probably dare to stand up in this place and say, no, I'm perfect. I've never done anything wrong. We've all sinned before a holy God. And we have to be held accountable for that. And Lord, we thank you so much that rather than let us try to work this out on our own, which would end in our own demise, you planned even before the foundation of the world to set in order the plan of salvation through one who is truly sinless, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, took on a human body, and for 33 some years, lived as God in a body here on earth, healed people and proclaimed Himself to be the Messiah. Had a great following of people. And yet in the end, He knew that He would have to die for the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in You for salvation. And that's exactly how it took place. This next Friday, he was taken and crucified on a cross. The Bible says it doesn't end there. On the cross, last words were, it is finished. What that means is simply that we don't have to work out our own salvation. We don't have to work to gain salvation. Salvation is a gift of God, the Bible says. For by grace you have been saved, not of works, Through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't get to heaven. We don't earn our salvation. It's a gift of God. It's simply reaching out and taking it, expressing a need and taking it, turning from our sinful selves to a holy God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that people's hearts would be drawn to you. Father, as Christians, I pray that you would remind us of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Lord, that you would remind us That there's not a day that goes by that we don't need your forgiveness. That we don't count on your blood washing us all over white as snow. Because we live in a sinful world and a sinful body. And we're confronted with sin on a daily basis. And yet we're called to live in obedience to your word. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that resides within us and gives us the power to do so. And yet, Father, even with that, sometimes we fail, sometimes we falter, sometimes we, we slip up, we sin. And Lord, we're thankful for verses like 1 John that says that we can come back to you and confess this sin to you and that you will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise that is. And it's all made possible through the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you prepare our hearts to receive our communion time. Father, your word says that as we come to this table, 
where this cracker and this juice represents the, the body and the blood that was sacrificed through the Lord Jesus Christ.